The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food health, and agriculture. And today I'm delighted to have Andy Fisher with me. He is the executive director of the Community Food Security Coalition. I've had the pleasure of attending Community Food Security Coalition meetings now for the past several years, and they are the best gatherings on earth to bring together people of like mind who really want to work for community food security. Andy, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Andy, tell me something. How did you get into this work? I was a graduate student in urban planning at UCLA back in the early 90s when the Rodney King civil disturbances hit Los Angeles, and it really galvanized a lot of us in the city to want to do work uh, in improving quality of life in Los Angeles. So what became evident was that the food system was not working in Los Angeles. Grocery stores were being burned down and being looted. So six of us who were grad students at the time decided to undertake a project to look at the food system in Los Angeles as an alternative to the, the corporate-based development that the mayor and others were promoting. And we spent a year with a professor, and uh, we had a hunger organization as our client, and we spent a year looking at the food system, looking at hunger and nutrition in Los Angeles, looking at a case study area in uh, near downtown and where people shopped and why there weren't supermarkets in inner city Los Angeles and why was there poverty and hunger. And also, more importantly, what were the alternatives? We looked at community gardens and farmers markets, food policy councils, among other things. And at the end of it, we issued a, a big, thick report called Seeds of Change. It got a lot of press. We got a front-page article in the LA Times. We got an editorial on the LA Times saying that city of Los Angeles should do a food policy council. And it just took off from there. And then I went on a year later to help found the Community Food Security Coalition and to get legislation through Congress in in the 96 Farm Bill that created the Community Food Projects Grant Program. What a tremendous effort. And what a tremendous result. You know, I was lucky. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Well, I think it probably took a lot more perseverance on your part than you might be willing to admit. But you've got now this incredible membership with over 250 organizations looking at social and economic justice and anti-hunger movements, sustainable agriculture, community gardening. I guess we should probably step back a little bit and just say, what does community food security mean? That's a great question. Community food security is about producing food, distributing food in a way that maximizes social justice and promotes health and is democratic. So it's about a whole system of how we, again, how we produce, how we distribute, and how we sell our food. That's an, again, an alternative to the corporate-based way of doing things. That's based upon people, not profit. That's based upon health promotion, and equity, and environmental protection. At the Community Food Security Coalition meeting that was held in Vancouver, I guess this was a couple of years ago. I lose track of time. Two thousand and six. Two thousand and six. Oh my. Well, you had a marvelous group of speakers from the Native American community, and they spoke about food sovereignty. 
What is the difference between food sovereignty and food security? You know, there really isn't a lot. Food sovereignty is a term that's used more in kind of an international context. It's really a, a refers to a country's ability to make choices about where its food comes from. And you can kind of extrapolate that back down to the community level and talk about how communities really need to have control over their food resources. So it's more about, you know, the politics and the control of the economics of it than it is about really some of the other aspects of food security. What do you think happened historically? I mean, it seems like we used to have control and then something shifted and we lost it. What happened in looking back? If you go back to previous to World War II, there certainly was more of a decentralized food system. There was more farmers on the land. There weren't the large supermarket agglomerations that we have now. The big food processors and manufacturers weren't there. I mean, I think we've seen what we've seen across the board with every part of our, our economy and our society. We've seen more mergers and more transnational corporations taking over larger parts of our economy. So it's, uh, it's a, you know, it's a trend that's paralleled everything else in our society in which capitalism has gotten bigger and bigger and, you know, I would argue less responsive to the needs of our communities. Yeah, I agree. And I'm hoping that really through the efforts of the Community Food Security Coalition largely because of your ability to bring solidarity to different groups that are all working towards the same endpoint, we really are seeing a change. I, I see a shift. I'm hoping that it's going to continue. There are certainly key pieces of legislation that I know your group is working on. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about those? Sure. I think probably the one thing I'd like to talk about is under the Child Nutrition Act reauthorization. Yes. Every five years, there's a bill that rolls through Congress called the Child Nutrition Act. It is, a major, is the main piece of legislation that uh, creates, that authorizes the school meals program. So school lunch, school breakfast, child care, as well as the WIC program, the Women, Infants, and Children program. So it's a rather large piece of legislation that shapes the way our kids eat school meals and also how pregnant women and children get access to nutritional benefits. Uh, so as part of that program, as part of that legislation, we have been pushing for a grants program called the Farm to School Grant Program that would create a $50 million entity. It would create a grant program that would be at $10 million a year for over a five-year period in which schools could apply to USDA for up to $100,000 to help start a farm to school program. And by farm to school, I mean that schools are sourcing their food for their school meals programs directly from local and regional farmers. So in Missouri, the idea that you could be getting Missouri-grown products during much of the year rather than sourcing them from California or from Florida or other parts of the country. And as we know, farm to school has taken root rapidly across the country. It's gone from almost zero programs about 15 years ago to over 2,000 school districts around the country are, are now buying from local and regional farms in some fashion. So it's a rapidly growing, rapidly expanding movement, and it's really captured people's imagination as it has provided a real concrete way to improve school meals to address the problems that we have in our communities around childhood obesity, as well as getting money into the pockets of local farmers. And we've seen uh, in some studies done in Oregon, for example, that 
for every dollar that is put into a farm to school program, about $3 is generated in the local economy. So we see it as an economic stimulus program as well. So the status of that legislation is that in the Senate, the chairwoman of the Senate Agriculture Committee, Blanche Lincoln, has put forth her version of the Senate bill, uh, and they're going to be talking about that next week in committee. And there is right now uh, $25 million in mandatory funding for, for farm-to-school programs, so half of what we asked for. But it is mandatory, which means that we would not have to go back to Congress every year for an appropriation. Well, that's a huge improvement right there. It is. It is. And it's something that, you know, if there were 50 schools a year that could be getting that money, that's tens of thousands of kids who could be eating better food. Right. Except it sounds like a lot of money until you start looking at the amount of dollars that are spent on, say, promoting Coke or Pepsi or Happy Meals. And you realize, wow, that's just a little drop in the bucket. Tell me something. What should we do as action steps as listeners? I don't know anybody who doesn't support better food for kids and supporting small family farmers. I would urge you to contact your uh, representative in the House and also your senators, and you can get their number by calling the Congressional Switchboard. Okay. 202-224-3121. Once you're contacted to a person in their office who works on agricultural issues, Tell them that you want your representative to support Farm to School Seed Grant Fund and Child Nutrition. It seems like that would also piggyback onto the need for more farmers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the school lunch program is a $12 billion market, so that's an enormous amount of money that is going out there that could be supporting local and regional food. In many communities where there are advanced Farm to School programs, where they've been doing this work for a number of years and really trying to increase the scale, one of the key barriers that they're, that they're hitting up against is the lack of farmers and the lack of product. So there is a, a crying need for more farmers on the land, for, for additional money for beginning farmer programs to get, as farmers retire, to get that land into the hands of younger people who want to be on the land and who want to be farming, as well as to be helping immigrants and others transition into farming operations. It's, so- it's a difficult operation, and it's, it's hard to make money and... Land costs are expensive, and we need all the federal support we can get to uh, ensure that uh, we have enough farmers on the land and, and food sovereignty for our nation. We absolutely do. And what what's so interesting to me is you're describing all of the needs. I'm also thinking here, what are the barriers to getting more farmers on the land? Uh, yes, and you mentioned the expense. And then there's also health care, right? We have to make sure that farmers can have access to some sort of health care so that, you know, they, it, it's one barrier that we can remove to make it easier to be a farmer and not have to take a job off the farm. That's very true. I mean, farming is one of the most dangerous occupations around. So farmers, as much as anybody else, need good health care. I'm not familiar with the details of what's up in Congress right now, but I, I know that that legislation will support more individuals being, getting access to, to better health care. The thing that I see here is that everything is connected. And isn't it interesting that it really all starts with feeding our own communities? It's, it's really interesting from a public planning standpoint and public health that, you know, to understand or to think ecologically that everything is connected. I also should mention, Andy, that you've got a big farm-to-school conference coming up. 
We do. We do a, an annual Farm to School conference. This year it's going to be in Detroit on May 17th and 19th at the Marriott. If folks are interested in it, they can look at www.farmtocafeteriaconference.org, and their registration is open for another six weeks or so. Well, that... We also do just one other thing. We also do an annual conference, which will be October 16th and 19th, which is going to be in New Orleans, which everyone's looking forward to because it will be a fantastic place. The website for that is www.communityfoodconference.org. And can you access both of those conference sites through the foodsecurity.org yes, website? Yes, you can. Okay, yes, great. Absolutely. For our listeners, I'll just state it again. It's www.foodsecurity.org. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Andy Fisher, who's the executive director of a fantastic organization, the Community Food Security Coalition, making tremendous strides. And I think it's interesting that this all started with Rodney King. If only he knew what he started, right? Absolutely. Well, I'm kind of chomping at the bit to ask you about your recent trip to Cuba. Sure. Go right ahead. Is there, can you use me to talk a little bit about it? or? Well, I'd like, to know, I'd like to know what your impressions were. So many of us look at Cuba like the forbidden fruit. You know, we all want to go. What is it really like? We hear lots of propaganda about Cuba. But what, what did you see? You know, I should just, con- you know, condition my response with, I have been to Cuba twice, once in 2003 for a week, and more recently, about a month ago, for three or four days. So I'm, I am not an expert. I do speak Spanish, and I was able to ask folks a lot of questions. But on a very basic level, Havana seems like is a very, very different place than anything we're used to. There's a very much a lack of commerce, a lack of transportation and of advertising. It's a wonderful, beautiful old city, a colonial jewel by the ocean. The people are extremely friendly, very curious about, about the U.S. and very curious about what's going on in other parts of the world. What we saw there was around healthcare and urban agriculture, and the urban agriculture sector in Havana is is amazing. Because of the fall of the Soviet Union and the Eastern European bloc back in the early 1990s, previously Cuba had a special relationship with those countries in which it had sold its products for a premium price and received oil and other products inexpensively. It was, it was subsidized very heavily by, by the Eastern European bloc. Once that went away in the early 90s, there was a lot of hunger. There was a lot of problems with, you know, people were really struggling to survive because all of the inputs and all of the oil that they had used to run their economy just dried up overnight. So the government was flexible enough to prioritize growing in the cities. And since the, since the mid-90s, I would say, the urban agriculture uh, sector has boomed. There's now about 350,000 well-paying jobs in the city and across the country in urban areas, and that's out of a total workforce of about 5 million people. They produce about 4 million tons of fruits and vegetables every year, and that's up about tenfold in a decade. And Havana is a city of about 2.2 million people, and it is generally regionally self-sufficient in produce. So, And that's not just from the city itself, but from the, the surrounding province, which is about 20 to 30 miles away. So everywhere you go, you see urban farms, and people are using their backyards to produce food. They're selling it at farm stands and farmer's markets. It's quite an amazing and inspiring.
inspiring system that they've created to really boost food production in the cities. And they, they've done it because they've had to. Right. It's been a real crisis there. You know, and obviously their system is so different than ours. You know, there's not much in the way of private ownership of land, and the government is able to mobilize resources much more quickly and comprehensively since it is much more of a, a socialist society. But nonetheless, you know, the, the lessons to take home for the U.S. are, are, are very, very impressive. What did you see with regard to your health care tours? I did not go on much in the way of health care tours. I did speak with some of the representatives there, and we got some, some of the less, we got lessons kind of in how the healthcare system works. There is a glut of doctors. There are most 88% of the doctors are female. People are assigned doctors based upon the neighborhood in which they live, so there's not a lot of consumer choice, unfortunately. But they really focus their energy on primary care and on prevention. Mm-hmm. Their infant mortality rates are apparently very low, much lower than many parts of the United States. And they focus on, again, on a prevention approach. Uh, they, have, they focus on herbal medicine in many cases because they don't have the money for, uh, to bring in expensive imported medicine, although they do have their own pharmaceutical industry. And one of the biggest exports of Cuba are our doctors as well. They have what they call the Latin American School of Medicine in which they train doctors from third world countries all across the globe. You know, they train students on how to be doctors and they go back to their countries, and they, they work in mainly in rural communities. Uh, so there's a real kind of solidarity emphasis uh, and a real kind of uh, approach of, of taking a country that had very poor standard of living prior to 1959 and boosting that up substantially. I suspect that one day, probably in our lifetimes, we will see the borders being open to American tourists? I, I mean, I, I think so. Do you think so, too? I hope so. I mean, I think there's a lot we can learn, and there's a lot that they can learn from us as well. So Cuba is not a threat to the United States except as an example. I would certainly would encourage the government to move in that direction. You know what I would hate to see? I would hate to see the ugly part of America go over to Cuba. I would I would hate to start seeing fast food restaurants and all of our plastic garbage and, and our overconsumption patterns influence maybe a more simple lifestyle. I don't know, maybe that's just me. Well, I think that's probably inevitable if the embargo is going to be lifted. I'm sure that, you know, American corporations will go in there and seize the market. Mm-hmm. You know, just the, the one thing I just wanted to kind of... Um, lead people with in terms of thinking about this is that the things that we value, such as free speech and freedom of choice and, you know, a, a plethora of consumer products and of wealth, you know, and, and the ability to be more uh, kind of operate in a free enterprise system and to be entrepreneurial, those are not necessarily present from what I was able to see in Cuba, but at the same time, they have much more economic security and much more equality. So the poor there seems to be better off in many ways than the poor in the United States. And the things that they value are that lack of economic inequality. And they value the fact that everybody can get a free college, free education through college, and that the entire country is, is almost entirely literate with almost no illiteracy whatsoever. The vast majority of the population has a college education. 
So you see a situation in which the economic and social aspects are more important to their society, but the kind of the freedom of expression and things like that are not as important. So it's just it's an interesting it's an interesting contradiction or juxtaposition. Yeah, the way and, we think about things. And I like the way you know you talk about bringing back to the United States the models, the effective models that you saw, the focus on producing more of our own food and focusing on preventive health care. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I hope that we're moving in that direction. And I think more people that go over and see how things work alternatively and bring back ideas, I, I can only suspect that they will flourish. I have to ask you about their agriculture. Let's go back to that for a moment. What's the livestock situation? Livestock? Yeah, is there animal agriculture? Is animal, um, do they, I'm assuming that their meat consumption probably pales in comparison to the American plate. I'm sure it does. I, I don't know that. I don't know the statistics, but Cubans do like their pork. That was pretty evident to us in going to restaurants. So do they have animals living on these urban agriculture plots? We did, yeah, you know, there's one interesting example of that. We did go to one, one place, one urban farm, that had a few cows on their lot, and this was at the edges of the city, and they were wanting to bring more cows onto their farm. And they had a, quite a few acres, maybe 10 or 20 acres or so. And the reason why they were doing that is because they wanted to close the fertility loop. They were having to get much of their fertilizer from off-site, and that was costly, it was a chore, and it wasn't as sustainable as they would like it to be. So they were setting up a system and setting up lands to have more cows on site so they could use, you know, they could take advantage of the manure that the cows produced for their own soil fertility. Mm. They also had a good uh, worm composting set up there as well. So, yes, uh, there are livestock within urban boundaries, and I think there's a desire, from what I could tell, to have more as long as, you know, they weren't a nuisance to the, to the population. I want to emphasize how important the Community Food Security Coalition meetings are. I think that if you've got a focus on more farm to school, then by all means check out the meeting that's going on in Detroit in May. But on a larger scale, I can't imagine a better gathering for people who are truly committed to social and economic justice around the food system than your meeting, Andy. I think it's just grown into being probably one of the best meetings I've attended all year. Thank um, you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. I want to give you a chance in our few remaining minutes to bring up any other issues that you think would be important for our listeners to know. So one of the things that, uh, that we've been working on and we think is, is very important is finding ways to avoid the two-tiered inequitable food system that we have now. And by that I mean that those who have money can go to Whole Foods, your co-op or farmer's market, and buy sustainably produced or organic food. And those that don't have money perhaps are living in neighborhoods where there isn't even a supermarket or they can only go to the corner store that has a selection of junk foods and unhealthy foods. And we all know that the food system makes the cheaper food or it tends to be the food that's not as healthy. So we're looking at ways to kind of reverse that situation and to help develop access to affordable, healthy food for all persons, regardless of their income. And some of that has to do with building new supermarkets and attracting corner stores to be carrying produce and other healthy foods. But some of it has to do with federal food programs. The food stamp program 
currently funds about $50 billion in benefits every year. 80% of that is going to supermarkets. And of the average food dollar, every dollar that's spent on food, only 19 cents is going to farmers. So 81 cents of every dollar that the average American spends on food is going into the pockets of processors, retailers, manufacturers, et cetera, et cetera. So what we're trying to do is, is to try to find ways for those food stamp users, those folks who are in poverty, to be getting access, to be getting healthy food. And if they can use their food stamp benefits now called SNAP or Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program right. at farmer's markets, that's a great win-win. That's a great way for them to be getting high-quality, healthy food, as well as to be getting more money into the pocket, uh, the pockets of American small farmers. So there's a number of barriers to that relationship. There's a lot of perception barriers on whether farmers' markets are a place that people can take their food stamps. There's a lot of technological barriers because the food stamp program has now gone to a debit card format. So it's not the tear-off paper coupons. It's a, it's, you know, it's a debit card, and you need the swipe terminal and the, and the phone line or the, or the, at least the wireless line uh, to be tra- making those transactions. And then there's, you know, just some real barriers as to whether uh, folks who are using food stamps or the SNAP program feel comfortable and feel like they can get the products they want Andy, and the convenience I'm... they need at farmer's markets. So we're in the middle of looking at all these issues and putting together a report that we hope will make some policy changes at USDA and also help farmer's markets and anti-hunger groups around the country to support these linkages. Andy, I'm going to have to cut us off because our 30 minutes is up. But I want to thank you so much for the work that you've done. The Community Food Security Coalition is a wonderful resource for all of us who care about feeding people well. The website, www.foodsecurity.org, is a one-stop shop for everything Andy's been talking about and more. And I want to close by thanking Andy, certainly, and thanking our listeners, and for reminding our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Andy, thank you so much for your time and work. You too, Melinda. Bye-bye. Bye.